Dispensing wisdom, inciting awesomeness, scaling joy. Welcome to the Mojo Studios podcast, serving up bite-sized doses of delicious and nutritious insight and inspiration intended to ignite your mojo within and add fuel to the fire of your life, your relationships, your work, and your contribution to the world. It's time to turn down the deluge of distractions and put yourself in a mindset of receptivity and growth. Absorb, digest, apply, repeat, dinner is served. Hey everybody, Mojo here with my friend John Comfort, and uh, we're very excited to launch a new podcast, new to both of us and new to you as well. Uh, it's, it's definitely a work in progress, but aren't we all? Really, that's kind of a metaphor for life, work in progress. Uh, John and I have been friends for more years than I care to admit, um, and the relationship has been close, and then it's been apart, and then it's been close again, not due to any conflict, but just proximity and geography and life intersection and not intersection. And in fact, speaking of the word intersection, we'll get back to that because that's a key word for the reason that we're even here together. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, I'd love to introduce my friend John and have him tell us just a little bit about himself. Uh, so, John, where where did you grow up? Give us just a little background, biographical uh, background, and a little bit about your education. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm new to this too, Joe. So you're introducing me to a whole new world here. Um, I am originally from the Midwest. Uh, grew up in Missouri, small town, middle America, and. Um, have now been in Southern California though for the last 25 years or so. I came out here to go to grad school, went to the USC film school, uh, but then um, that's right, that's right, fight on. I definitely had aspirations then to go into Hollywood um, and it was, that was not what life had in store for me. It's not what God, I think, had in store for me. He then said, you're going to go in. In what capacity, John? In what in what capacity did you anticipate uh, you would enter Hollywood? Well, the program was uh, motion picture producing specifically. Um, and so it was basically to be the producer, which is the big picture. Uh, the director definitely has the creative vision of how to deliver a film. But the producer has to then sort of keep protect that big vision and kind of keep a number of different people on the same page, including the budget. And so it's sort of the real world meets creative a little bit. It definitely uh, appealed to me and uh, I definitely benefited from um, those sorts of classes, uh, particularly the macro classes in what story is about. And we'll definitely get into that as we go. So let me dig a little bit deeper right there. That, that's a huge transition, especially for somebody who doesn't know the detail, but what, what were some of the key moments or the key pivots for you that took a focus off of one particular direction to something co that sounds completely unrelated, even though I'm sure it's not? Right. I was attempting to uh, write some scripts. Uh, I've written several. Um, I'm not claiming that any of them are, uh, you know, award winners or whatever, but I knew, I knew that I was continually being drawn to themes about... Um, you know, certainly a lot of history, uh, a lot of the implications then of American history and race then kept coming up. Um, my attempts to then to go forward with some of those things were interestingly uh, stymied, shall we say. And then uh, at the same time, just to simply survive, I was getting jobs. Uh, I had a job um, where the proximity to uh, 
urban Los Angeles. It was easy to live there and see some of these uh, things playing out in real life. And then I got a job with um, an urban ministry um, that I really got to dig in on some of this stuff and recognize the really the much bigger, deeper spiritual things that were going on. Um, and I think they had been percolating in me the whole time, but then to put specifics to it and say, oh, that's what that is. And oh, oh my gosh, that totally fits. And a lot of it, of it then too, this is a very quick way to say a very big thing, but it was that I recognized the power of narrative then on a personal level that people need indeed to much more literally be able to write their own story. And um, these narrative elements that I learned at USC and then applying that in this real world situation and the notions of reconciliation and change and uh, all that really came into sharp clarity for me. Um, and so for a long time now, I've been uh, seeking then to apply that, uh, you know, however I can. This is a bit of a rabbit trail, so we won't go too far down. But you made a comment the other day that really caught my attention, started with something like people in Hollywood will say, we don't know anything about anything. Explain what that meant. Hollywood's a very young industry. It's only, what, about uh, a little over 100 years old. Uh, for that entire history, though, it has been an adage in Hollywood where they'll claim they don't know anything and that they don't know why this movie will hit or that movie won't or why, you know, whatever, this t TV show, this uh, documentary. Uh, you don't know what's going to strike a chord with people. But then what we were talking about is I said they actually, though, will contradict themselves a little bit. They do know one thing. And the one thing that they know is that in a story, somebody, generally the protagonist, the main character, has to go through a change. And if they don't, it's not dramatic. No one cares. No one's going to go see that. No one's going to pay money for that. And so there's a bit of an objectivity to the box office that they want. We need a character that's going to go through a some sort of growth and change. And so... We know we love to see it, but what we talked about then, Joe, is that none of us like to do it personally. Um, and right. uh, I think yes. that's some of what got your attention. So I've heard it called the hero's journey. I'm not sure if you've heard it that way as well. I'm sure you have because of film school. Um, but you're right, the, the application, and we'll get into this in further podcasts, but the application of the hero's journey on screen, which is very compelling and brings the audiences in and makes Hollywood lots of money, the reason that's so popular is because it's a universal principle for all of our lives. It's just that we don't want to necessarily, necessarily apply it or have to go through the pain to get to the change, right? Well, absolutely. And let me um, be, I could go off that for one more minute too, is that, that is, it's a, a big part of what we would uh, hone in on um, at USC. And the, the notion of that hero's journey is indeed that universal. And the key thing in that, that change, one of the rabbit trails that we will explore further, but is that that is essentially repentance and the willingness then to rethink things. Repentance means to rethink fundamentally. And I don't know that we embrace that enough. Yeah, the reason I even dug into that a little bit is because I, that's part of that's part of our story, even as friends, our story as individuals, is that uh, you know John and I both are much now older than we anticipated we would be when we had a chance to come to the table, have a voice, uh, be heard, share our 
talents and treasures and expertise and education or whatever. Um, but both of us agreed that even if this had happened a year ago or 10 years ago, we wouldn't be telling the same story that we're telling now. And that journey, I've heard it said that change is really hard at the beginning, messy in the middle and beautiful at the end. And uh, I, I see that now, you know, from the, uh, hindsight, looking back over my own life. Absolutely. I was going to say that um, enough about me. Uh, let's talk about you a little bit more. But that that is that common thread that you and I both share that um, admittedly, too, I think that you and I talked about this, you know, we are not um, offering up any kind of lofty credentials or whatever. And it's just simply, do these words make sense? That does this dialogue make sense? Um, are we saying something like I know that specifically we could go in on aspects of leadership specifically that would be much more in your specific wheelhouse so given all the breadth of uh, um, experiences you've had over the years and um, it's it's not to throw people under the bus but I think that we've agreed that we've seen it's not getting done <laughs> we are seeing breakdowns I think and failures I think simple simple failures in leadership. Uh, we see it in lots of institutions, um, lots of places. And, and the way I would articulate it is simple but challenging things never get addressed. And I think that, uh, you know, you've experienced some of the same along your journey. You know, because of my particular interest in studies, uh, it's become very clear that, you know, I studied at Pepperdine for my graduate degree and I studied organizational development. Um, and in the big picture, the whole point was, you know, aligning an organization according to values and beliefs and create a culture where everybody's talents and are aligned with their desires all in, in the benefit for the organization, but not at the expense of the individual. But what I didn't really pick up until just, just recently is that it's so easy to think that things are going to change or to, or to, I guess, not think or to assume that things need to change at the macro level without realizing that nothing changes at the macro level unless it starts with me. It starts with the individual, right? And so uh, it's easy easy to pick out what's wrong with a company, a team, a society, a government, or whatever, and just shoot at it. I mean, we see it all the time, right? But the solution isn't them. The solution isn't a big picture. The solution is tiny. It's It's me. It's if it doesn't start with me, if I don't change, then nothing changes in my world. Oh, there's there's lots of cliches and adages that you could apply directly to that. And I think the point is, is that, yeah, there's a literal truth to this, that you've got to be the change, actually. Or, be you know, change, right? hurricane starts with the butterfly's wings. Um, or, <laughs> uh, any Never heard of, that before. That, oh, like all politics is local, you know, that's another one. That uh, it, it really is true that... Um, this stuff flows from the macro to the interpersonal and back and forth, uh, even intrapersonal. You know, we're yes. negotiating with our own selves, even. Yeah, I've, you know, I'm drawn to the talks and the writings of John Maxwell and also Simon Sinek, two of kind of the heroes for me career-wise. But even they have come full circle in their own careers, which are highly successful and well-known and very influential, to... They now, if you listen to them carefully, they say change is an individual thing. It's not a group thing. It's not an organizational thing. Change begins with the person. 
And and even take it down further, I'm discovering that change is like, it's just the sustaining small, simple steps, daily habits. It, you know, it's not this lofty ideal of going from uh, a nobody to a superhero or making the sweeping change overnight. Almost all change is, it's, it's not hard, but you do have to stick with it, right? It's small, sustainable steps over time. And I think one thing, this is sort of, I don't think I'm ruining anything, but it is sort of the punchline that, that all of that is, can you rethink things to be a little bit more loving? And the thing about love is then, yeah, though, it's all those things. And it includes tough love and it's merciful, but it's also accountable. It doesn't enable, it's not codependent. It's, it's respects one another. It's, you know, there's dignity of each party involved. Uh, and that ultimately that goes to that place. I mentioned that phrase a little earlier, I think, but that it's uh, mutually submitted, um, that it is this uh, two-way street and it's, it's constant and it's, it's in every exchange that we have. That's a good segue. You know, um, the reason I was even drawn to Pepperdine's program in organizational development, I was really at a crossroads in my life. And I know you can relate to this on your own level, but deciding at that point when I was in my, I guess, early 30s, am I going to, I felt a calling, you know, that there was a purpose for my life, a higher purpose that has eternal implications. Um, so I was at this crossroads. Do I take the traditional route and go to seminary and do what the seminary training and many of my colleagues and friends have done that? Um, but there was something about that that just it wasn't exactly what I was looking for. And so I chose organizational development, even though it's a business program, because it was based in the principle that you're talking about, even though they might not say it overtly, it was based in mutual respect, love for the individual, knowing that if you let the individual flourish and create a culture where the individual flourishes, then the organization flourishes and the bottom line gets better, as opposed to a typical business program where what do you need to change you know, in the organization uh, strategically or technically to increase your bottom line, regardless of whether that's good for the individuals who are producing for you? Uh, yeah, I resonate with that a lot, actually. It points to the universality of this. You know, God is God of everybody, even people who don't think he's there. To any listener, Joe and I do not claim that we think we have everything figured out, but we are saying that there are some things that don't get said that maybe we have a little something to offer here, especially over the years. And so, Joe, your road through that more of a business model, all the same principles still apply, though. You know, uh, I could say, too, that I considered seminary at certain points, but it similarly wasn't quite right. Those business models, though, that are indeed tied to that bottom line, because they are interested in profit, ultimately. Um, but it is then, if you want a sustainable profit, it's going to have to be tied to then something a little bit broader than just a ruthless pursuit of the bottom line. And unfortunately, it seems our business culture forgets that all too often. And uh, I don't want to be to flip and throwing people under the bus, but I do think there are some great examples and some big examples in the world. I'm definitely an Amazon customer, and I'm not looking to attract uh, undue attention here, but they fixate on serving the customer, <laughs> and they do a great job serving the customer, and I appreciate that, but they don't lead the customer. The people they lead are their employees. And they've received criticism then because they don't take that into account, arguably, 
enough. And there are other companies that do, a, I would say, a better job at that. Uh, like Southwest Airlines gets a lot of credit for give, making their employees their number one priority, and then they thrive. And that is great. Costco is another one. And then Trader Joe's is another one. But Trader Joe's and Costco are interesting a little bit on the flip side. Costco, I know, will allow their employees to unionize, but then it's not a big deal because they already treat them great. Trader Joe's, on the other hand, doesn't really want to mess with unions, but they try to avoid that by treating them great. And so it just works on either side that we treat our employees great and they do great work for us and everything works out great. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I uh, came across a quote just last week from Marty Moran. He's the CEO and founder of, of Chipotle. As we know, that's a cultural phenomenon, right? right. And so he, he's posted this quote in an, in an interview and I just I screen grabbed it and it says, Building a business means harnessing the beauty, wisdom, and talent of human beings. Building a business means harnessing the beauty, wisdom, and talent of human beings. And so I, I resonated with that, and so I captured it. I posted it in some different Facebook groups that I have, and I, and I posed it as a question. Hey, here's what Mar Marty Moran says, very successful. It's you know a different statement that you hear from most CEOs. What do you think? And I got... An overwhelming number of people say, yeah, right on. I love that. That's, that's perfect. I, you know, super. But then there was this small contingent that said, well, that's a nice platitude, but it doesn't really work that way in real life. And if you go interview anybody in a Fortune 500 company, you'll realize that they're just crushing their souls to get to for profit. And I thought, well, that proves my point, right? <laughs> that's exactly what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And and to take our, our conversation earlier about macro to micro, Again, it's so easy for me to say, oh, if only companies, if only CEOs, if only people in leadership would, realizing that I got to I gotta turn it back on me. I, I, it's not going to do any good for me to say what others should do if I haven't absorbed that and believe it and, and act and let the change start in me so that I realize that I want to find the beauty and the wisdom and the talent in the humans around me and celebrate that and, and build culture from, from the inside out. Um, yeah, I think I could uh, go with that as well to say, and I, I'm, I feel compelled to say again, too, we don't have all of this figured out, but I know that right. you and I try to apply that and walk that walk, um, you know, as fathers and as husbands and in our own work. And in a big way, this is, would be a big rabbit trail that we're not going to go down now, but in a big way, too, the timing of our careers is something then that we have We've kind of been surrendered to, and we can't then, I don't think we do claim to be like victims of anything. It's just that this is what God has had for us. And if I want to be serious about these ideas that I'm talking about, I need to be faithful to what God has for me today. And so I, I know that I've done my best to live by that. Um, and that, that, and that even that idea has helped me through some harder times, because uh, admittedly, I can get frustrated with uh, this or that not happening the way that I want it to. But um, boy, how do you have I felt God's provision and sustenance uh, along this process too? Yeah, and to echo that and to take it just one step further, and I, I don't think we've talked about this specifically, so I'd love to hear your thoughts, but um, over time, over years, uh, having the doors continue to close or at least not open when I think they should or when I want them to, uh, to, to put our specifics on that. So at age... 23, fresh out of college. After my first internship, I got a job as a director at a director level. So now fast forward 30 years, I'm 55. 
and I'm at a director level. And I'm thinking, what is wrong with this picture? Because just the natural progression of things means at some point I should have been promoted. I should have worked up. I should have climbed, right? And yet here I am 30 years. It's not the same exact job and I've worked with different organizations, but but I'm basically at the same level, although I get paid more. Hallelujah. <laughs> but But all that to say, over time, that sort of eroded my self-confidence and it made me doubt maybe I don't have something to offer. Maybe... Maybe I'm overestimating my value or my ideas or my contribution because I, I put press against the doors, but I'm not getting invited to the table of the decision makers or my voice isn't being heard or they don't really want to know. I, I went through a long period of thinking, well, maybe that is my fault. Maybe there's there's a problem with me rather than with the system. Um, but I have come to the place only recently, just to go right to where you were, John, that maybe that was God's plan all along. And quite honestly, in, in the light of sovereignty, and for those of you who you know aren't theologians, sovereignty just means that God's the boss and nobody can say otherwise, right? He's, he's got the final say. The buck stops there. In, in, so there's nothing that I can do as a puny, finite human being that can thwart the will of God and his sovereignty. And so I have to remind myself in, in a different way than what you just said, that God has blessed my life in so many ways. And yes, I can look at the closed doors, but I, I should interpret that as... Uh, anything other than God's will playing out of my life. And perhaps it's, you know, the pain you have to go through on the hero's journey before you discover the change. And you're in good company, Joe. And I'm not referring to me. Um, Moses was a shepherd for what, like 60 years or something like that. Um, and then he dealt with all the insecurities. So when God asked him to do something, you know, um, there's lots of biblical uh, examples that we can go to and, uh, and many people can, you know, recite those and that's important. That's uh, very real. Um, but yeah, I think it does speak to this idea that, um, we don't know what the path is always. And we do have to be surrendered to that. You know, there is a surrender, um, to what's going to happen, um, that, like I've said this before, this is in the same point. Um, I, I remember talking to a, a colleague and I just said, I was older than this colleague. And I just said, yeah, I gave up on five-year plans a long time ago. I thought about that when I was in my 20s. But uh, after that, it was just, uh, am I, it's not about contentment either, but it's about, am I doing uh, what I need to be doing? Am I doing a good job for the people that I'm with? Um and am I doing that? I will say this too. This is a little bit of a tangent, maybe, but maybe not. I I remember one comment that was very uh, affirming to me. I took a lot of. It made me happy to hear someone say this. I, as I was leaving one organization um, on very good terms, and that actually that idea of leaving on good terms doesn't happen often enough. But I was leaving on good terms. But um, some of the people that were you know below me in the food chain. They said in uh, when they were saying nice things, they said, I've never seen John get angry. And then my boss followed up shortly after and he said, well, I have. <laughs> and I appreciated that contrast because uh, I do think it is consistent with the ideals that you and I are talking about and want to talk about, that the people that are quote unquote under you in the food chain, quote unquote, shouldn't really feel your wrath that you are. I mean, it doesn't mean you never have to apply discipline or um, correction, but 
the injustices, <laughs> you punch upward, not downward, as far as those food chain goes. In those moments, day to day, you know, you just you do your best. Uh, and I guess that made me feel then I, that I had done a, a reasonably good job at that job. And, you know, that my boss was willing to hear my anger without firing me or whatever. Well, that's just a good leadership principle, right? You have to absorb all of that without turning around and spewing it back out on people. Right. And unfortunately, that's that's rare as well, right? Uh, yeah, but I think this this goes to part of my journey, a deep part of my journey too. Just to be transparent, is that um, I'm I'm nice to a fault. Mm. Uh, in other words, I, this has to do with a lot of trauma in my own childhood and a, a family that imploded twice before I you know was out of junior high. Oh wow! Um, but I I never wanted to be the focal point of disappointment or anger or wrath or whatever. Um, and some people in that scenario, other kids go invisible. And me, I just went the opposite direction. I'm happy, funny, take the energy out of the room, anything that's negative. I just avoid conflict and dissipate it whenever possible. Peacemaker. Um, and and those are good traits. However, the, the downside of that was I have mistaken in my life way too many times nice for kind. And it actually, it's, it's taken marriage and my wife to point this out to me in many different ways in ways that are actually painful to me, but absolutely a kind of pain that will make me grow is that she'll say, Joe, what you're saying, it, it, it is nice. And you're delivering it in a nice way, even though it's not nice news, but you're, you're not, it's not kindness. If you just are always nice, kindness requires, sometimes you have to disagree. Kindness requires that you have to stand up for yourself. Kindness requires that if you want what's best for the other person, you have to point out their flaws and you don't want to do that because you're too nice. And, and I used to think, is there such thing as too nice? There's no such thing as too nice, but I've come to come to believe that, that I mistook niceness for kindness. Yeah. And I, I'd much rather grow in my hero's journey towards kindness than stick in niceness for too long. Yeah, no, I think that that's a great uh, distinction. Uh, so let's, uh, let's turn the corner a little bit and just talk about our the history of our friendship. We've talked a little bit of our own history. By the way, I grew up in Montana. I went to school in Minneapolis for a couple of years and uh, was kind of still looking for what I want to do with my life. So I as a musician, I joined a gospel group and I toured the country and then eventually toured the world. I've been in 30 countries and all 50 states, primarily as a gospel musician. And that will play into our discussions down the road as well. Sure. Um, and it's actually part of our story, too, because John and I met at um, a church up in L.A., pretty prominent church, the church that my wife and I got married. I think John was part of the group that my wife was a part of, a young adults mm -hmm. group. Is that right? Sure. Yeah. So uh, when we got engaged, decided to get married there. Then I got introduced introduced to my wife's friends, and John was one of those. And because we're kindred spirits, we hit it off pretty well. We stayed in touch even after uh, we were gone from that church. And then used to, I used to get up early in the morning and drive from my home in Culver City to the inner city ministry where John was working, and we would play basketball before the sun came up and had a lot of fun battles on the courts. And then life, as it does, uh, caused our paths to diverge for a while. Um, and it wasn't until maybe a week and a half ago or so, I posted something on Facebook, uh, something that isn't even in my normal mode, because I'm, I'm still the happy, positive guy. But I posted something about intersectionality. And quite honestly, I'd never even heard of intersectionality until I came across this post myself. And I started reading. Um, and so another thing that John and I have in common is we're we're married and in families that have multi-race as part of our experience, which which we both adore, and we'll, we'll talk about that down the road. Um, but so this caught my eye, caught my attention, started reading it, and 
uh, I, I often avoid political political stuff and you know stuff that's way out in one side of, of the spectrum or another. But this seemed very balanced. It seemed very wise. It seemed very loving. And I thought this is just too good. I need to share it. People need to read this. So I'd make this post completely out of the ordinary for me. John picks up the phone within minutes. He's like, so um, do you and your circles ever talk about intersectionality? And I'm like, quite honestly, no, I, I didn't even know what it was until right now. And he's like, oh, that's interesting because this is a big part of where, where I am. Yeah, you had posted that thing on intersectionality. And uh, I specifically, it's often coupled with uh, something that's known as CRT, which is critical race theory. And... Oh, you could get a, a lot of different definitions of this stuff, but intersectionality, I think you could loosely say is the the intersection of different kind of identity um, perspectives or realities as people perceive them. The interplay between all of these different perspectives is uh, loosely kind of what you might call intersectionality. And then it again is often coupled with this thing, uh, CRT, which many people are saying is Super controversial, um, but in my view, I don't know that they are handling it very well. <laughs> this critical race theory stuff isn't as controversial to most of my African-American friends, shall we say. And so uh, it's something that I think that the church actually needs to try to learn from and, and get uh, their head around, but um, it is causing much consternation at the moment. I don't want to say it defies description, but it's just a school of thought that is, it's scholars trying to figure out what is still going on with racism. What, what is systemic racism? Some people dispute if systemic racism even exists. Um, does it exist? I think most CRT scholars would say, yes, it does. This is what we're trying to deal with. Um, the point that race is obviously a flashpoint in our culture, I don't think anyone would dispute. Uh, it's what then do you do with it and how can we um, get past isn't quite the right word, but how can we reconcile this is actually, I think, what needs to be done. And it's a very important point. This I'll just cut straight to the chase. The church has long, and when I talk about the church too, I'm talking about the predominant church of America, and that has been predominantly led by white people and white men. It's been thinking about racial reconciliation for a long, long time. But the problem has been is that it's never fully been realized or fulfilled or whatever. It's all too much the same things keep happening. And we're not going to dig into any specific issues right now, but I'm going to go back to something that I think we said earlier. I get how the racial element is front and center. But the word reconciliation is what then I would focus on. And it has to be authentic. And then I would say it has to be recognized is that you need to be fully reconciled. The whole point of the Bible is to be reconciled to God. And then that means being reconciled to your neighbor. And that means being fully submitted to God. And that means being mutually submitted with your neighbor. And I don't know that churches explain this very well or that our theology doesn't do enough to help people in this way or to guide people in this way. That's, it's beautiful. And, and I want to go back to something else John has said a couple times, which will be a theme uh, throughout our podcasting, is that we don't ever want to come across as the know-it-all, the answer, we've got it all figured out. Uh, John and I both realize 
this is a journey and a journey that we may not get to the end before we get to the end, if you know what I'm talking about. Um, and that's okay. I think the most important part is, well, there's lots of important parts, but the important part is that we're growing and learning and we're moving towards reconciliation. Um, you know, a, a lot of times, even Christianity is misinterpreted as an overnight change as, you know, you pray the prayer and it's a magic wand and all of your troubles are gone. And there's no evidence for that. And there's no even biblical support for that, really. So I, I like to say often that people mis mistake being a Christian. They, they think the interpretation is that you're Christ-like. And I would say Christian means you're on the path. You're you're becoming Christ-like. It's the process. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot more grace and there's a lot more reconciliation and growth built into that definition of becoming. And in fact, C.S. Lewis even addresses this a little bit. He says, some people ask him, well, why someone who's been a Christian for a long, long time seems more of a jerk than somebody that just came to Jesus overnight, right? And he says, well, they don't even, people don't even start in the same place. Based on your background, your location on the, in the earth, your, you know, your profile, all these things, um, some of us due to no uh, fault of our own or no credit of our own, started in a much better place than others. And so it's really not about who's who's more like Jesus. It's like, are we daily working out our faith and our salvation to become more like Christ? It's, and I, you know, a lot of people say they're a Christ follower. And to me, because of my own experience and my own journey, to me, Christ follower is a little bit too detached, even for my taste, because that means Christ is in front of me and I'm just walking behind him. And, and I'm not against that. I, I like the concept. But really, I, I see more Christ as got his arms around me, like I'm in the shadow of his wing and he's the mother duckling and I'm the little one and I'm walking under the shadow. I'm not following him. I'm like side by side and, and really sometimes tucked in as close as I can because I'm scared. And sometimes I'm wandering out, you know, to the end of the wingtips because I want to show how independent I am. But ultimately, I, I want to be beside him. I don't want to be behind him so much. Well, that's a great image. And that goes straight to, I think, uh, another misnomer a little bit is that um, the, that concept, what you just described with the uh, mother duckling is a little bit more like discipleship, I think, is misunderstood. That it is, are you willing to receive God's discipline and be disciplined mm -hmm. by Ouch. <laughs> life and experiences? And are you willing to be disciplined in your behaviors? Are you willing to receive discipline? And the, the clarifier, I think, is that people know that children actually prefer it when they know where the boundaries are and they know what the discipline means. And it makes them feel uh, like a stronger sense of self and a stronger sense of, I know what I can and can't do here. And that makes me actually feel better and behave better. And it's good for me to be that way. And that really, really is how we need to be with God and have that's what it means, I think, to have faith like a child, too. It's not this just uh, innocent, uh, you know, cotton candy thing. It's like, are you willing to receive that discipline and know that that's better for you? I was going to say, too, that believe me, Joe and I are well aware that we are two white guys sitting here talking about this. Um, and I don't want to dig into this too much now either, but it it is, um, maybe it is worthwhile uh, that... I do indeed believe that the greater church of America needs to understand this racial thing better. And it is, I think, unfortunately, not doing well with it. It's failing even. Um, many people will say then um, that white people need to 
listen and learn. Uh, white people need to teach themselves. White people need to uh, understand so many more things. But they've also frequently said, too, and white people need to speak up. And that has to be all, all that has to be balanced. And the balance might be some of what we're talking about. Balance might be a reconciliation of all these competing ideas of how then do you go forward? Um, and so balance is another idea that or word that Joe and I have resonated on, I think. Idea of resonance and a tuning fork of finding like perfect pitch and all that. Yes. It all fits. So I, I want to clarify even a little bit further or take John's uh, thought about balance a little further. I heard just recently, and this really resonated with me to take the tuning fork, is that um, we often think that we need to strive for balance, but balance um, implies a scale where it's even on both sides, almost like the scales of justice, right? That's what balance looks like. That's the picture. What really we should be striving for he was proposing is not balance necessarily, but harmony, which, you know, as a musician, of course, and resonance and tuning fork, this really strikes a chord in me, strikes a chord. <laughs> but, but he, so his description was think of a symphony orchestra. You've got, you know, anywhere from 60 to 120 musicians. They don't all play all the time. They don't all play the same number of notes. And sometimes it's big and everybody's involved. And sometimes and I know this from my own experience, you're just sitting there at, at your chair in front of a music stand counting measures. One, two, three, four. And I've been in orchestras where it said, you know, 86 bars of rest. But the whole thing's going on and everybody else is playing or so it seems. And I'm just sitting in my chair with my trumpet. Well, when do I come in, right? And then when I do come in, I get, I get to do something and it's fun and it's important and I really feel like I'm part of it. But for the other 86 measures, I'm just counting. Well, that really is, I think that's a better picture for what we're after and what life looks like is that not everybody can speak all the time. Nobody has, not everybody has the same volume or the same sound or the same pitch, but we all have something to contribute. And if you're the piccolo or you're the oboe or you're the bassoon and all you just got this two bar solo in the middle of a big bombastic movement, well, that's really important because that speaks to the texture and the tapestry and the richness of the overall musical piece that makes it so wonderful. makes it so beautiful. Uh, and so I feel myself really like, oh, man, yeah, I've been striving for balance, but really what I want is harmony. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's a beautiful uh, re-articulation, too. And then, too, and this is not at all to argue, but just simply to look at the that harmony even of itself would be a form of balance and that you wouldn't want all piccolos. You would not want all oboes, that this um, synergistic thing that becomes greater than the some of the parts is um yes it's beautiful and it's transcendent actually and then it might be too that it's akin to that we're talking about the kingdom of god um and we can get into a lot of other topics of then what then does that mean with equality and equity and opportunity and all these different things i do think too that uh, i love the the illustration and those are important to help people find clarity that's yet another word that we can talk about but that we also frequently we make things harder than they need to be because they I do think that they are simple but challenging things that often get missed or avoided. I'm going to draw us to a close here, not because we couldn't talk anymore. In fact, anybody who knows the two of us know that we could we could continue this all day and really enjoy it. Um, but, I, but what I want my listeners to hear is that uh, one, John and I don't have all the answers, but we are wrestling with big issues 
issues that really are important and can be transcendent. Uh, we're inviting you into the conversation. It might be in the terms of the way you comment, or at least the hopefully the, the, the dialogue and the conversations that you have after this with the people that are in your life, right? Um, and also that, that it's not our place to be sitting in the balcony like the two curmudgeons on The Muppet Show and just bombasting whoever's on stage and saying how, how wrong they are. Most of the time, those guys couldn't even hear what was going on, which I think that's a great metaphor there as well, right? But we're not, we're not here to, to hurl insults at the people who are on stage, but rather we're here to create a, a safe and loving environment where we can maybe have different conclusions or at least different perspectives and honor those and realize that even in the process of being present with each other is a form of change. And those are those small, sustainable steps that really can make a difference in our own lives, our families, our tribe, our community, et cetera, and eventually the world. So with that, uh, I'm going to sign off and I invite you all back to the next podcast. So thanks for joining us today. I also want to say, and I'll probably say this almost every episode, that I fully realize that time is one of the most precious and unrenewable resources in your life, in the world. So the fact that you've spent any time with me and with John, uh, don't take that lightly. I want to make sure that your time was well spent, that there's a huge return on your investment. Uh, and I welcome your input and John and I as well. So God bless you all. And may uh, we all move towards Christ, no matter how far away we might feel in this moment. All right. That's it. God bless you. If this episode was beneficial to you, be sure to pay it forward, sharing it with others who may need a boost as well. Until next time, dream big, start small, act now. Thank you for tuning in.